I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Work Stories is a place for women of color to share their experiences in the workplace. We're no longer whispering these stories to our best friends and partners and then shoving them to the backs of our minds and just dealing. We're talking about bias, equal pay, bad bosses, racist hiring practices, and all the crazy things your coworkers have done or said to you. This is a safe place to tell those stories. The floor is open, y'all. We are telling it all. Welcome back to Work Stories. Whether it's a Metro card or free daycare or a 401k match, our jobs can provide us with so much more than just a base salary. Our next guest wants us to fully understand the benefits at our disposal in the workplace and how those can change our financial wellness drastically, particularly when we're of color. I'm Laura Stamps. I am head of DE&I at Financial Finesse. What I specialize in is helping either people that want to work with our company or people that work with our company align certain DE&I organizational goals with the goals of their financial well-being program. I help to uh, conceive and implement strategies for engagement since, you know, a lot of organizations really struggle with reaching certain parts of their organizations. And typically those are the populations that are most in need of services like ours, which are financial coaching, um, digital solutions, digital coaching, as well as group coaching. I live in a town called Ferndale, Washington. Now... Right. If anyone knows it, like high five to you, but I live 12 minutes from the Canadian border. Are there any people up there that look like you? (laughs) So I was actually looking at a TikTok video that talked about the states with the highest black populations and not shockingly, Washington state is not there. (laughs) Um, So we do see people every once in a while. So here's the other thing is I am black and Irish and some other things. But there are there are mixed people that are up here. Like, you know, people are commingling, if you will. Some black people that are actually from here and sometimes Seattle, Tacoma, which is about two hours south of us. But no, in general, you will you will not find any Jamaican spots. Right. Oh, my goodness. Well, that sounds like a beautiful area to be in. So... Talk to us about being in the finance industry and how you moved throughout your career and like what your experiences have been like as a Black woman in that space. The reason I got into the financial industry is from an internship search when I graduated from high school many years ago, year I will not share, but (laughs) I didn't realize it was a minority internship program and myself and another gentleman that I was friends with, we were chosen 
And so I've been in the industry in a few different areas, everything from a B-school that I worked in by accident to becoming a banker to doing credit counseling and mortgage counseling and bankruptcy counseling for one organization to a very well-respected investment firm where I did internal sales and other things. And now I'm here. So I've been consumer facing. I've been inside. I've done a lot of different things. And it's been really interesting as far as understanding how we're impacted by the financial services industry, you know, as people of color, the fact that it makes sense that sometimes there are no solutions for us, because quite frankly, in certain roles, we're just not there. And if we are there, we're not necessarily designing solutions for people that are like us. So it's been interesting. It can be enlightening. It can be lonely. It can make you mad, but For me, it also inspires me to strive for solutions that will really impact generations to come. And that's what I'm excited about. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. So it's like, you know, pick an avenue. Where do we start? (laughs) Exactly. Can you talk to us a little bit about the intersection of DEI issues and financial wellness? I don't know if, if everybody listening knows all of the history. I'm sure they're familiar with like the earning gap and things like that. But can you talk to us a little bit more about the root of this? So when it comes to DE&I and financial well-being, I always talk about where the concentrations are. So when you talk about folks that have, for example, the lowest, at least from our proprietary information, we actually have a think tank that works on this. And I co-authored a paper a few years ago about race and financial stress. So black women are the most financially stressed population, and we also have the lowest financial wellness score comparatively. That's not shocking, I think, for anyone who's been paying attention to race, racial wealth gaps, income gaps, things like that. Mm There is a high correlation between financial stress and issues and income, which also means when it comes to who makes what, there's such a large divide between income in, for example, African-American and Black households versus white counterparts. Mm -hmm. So it's not shocking. You know, there are a lot of reasons for it, systemic bias, so many reasons for it. And it impacts us in different ways. And in some cases, it's in ways that we don't even think about. So for example, I was talking to a gentleman a few years ago when I started doing research into student loan debt by race and gender. So looking at that intersection, and we know that black women are the most educated population, mm-hmm. theoretically, but we also hold, you know, more often than our other counterparts, more student loan debt, we're more likely to have it and our balances are higher. You know, it's thinking about that. And then me, so, you know, I have a degree in women's studies. And I always say that finance is my accidental career, mm-hmm. because the way that I view the world is through the lens of race, class, gender, sexuality, what I like to call ism schisms and how they affect us. I think as particularly as black and brown folks, when we talk about finances related to work, we're always focused on salaries. (laughs) And it's like, we don't really talk much more than that. Okay, let's just start like if we're considering a new job, what financial benefits or things in that realm should we be thinking about when negotiating or just knowing we're going to start a new job, have a new salary and have a fresh start? There are people in certain organizations that are managers and directors of total rewards and things like that. So it's a, it's almost a fancy phrase to talk about not just salary, but what are all the other perks available at work and what is the cost and the value? So there's one job that I got, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but they'll tell me my salary. And then they would tell me the value of my healthcare my retirement contributions and all the other things. And they would 
they would value it as a total rewards package. Oh no. So yeah. So that's, that's not really uncommon in the benefit space. And in some cases, you know, they're evolving that, but I agree wholeheartedly that we do need to take a look at those benefits because sometimes the value of the benefits is much more impactful than the salary itself. So to your point, for example, if black women are the most economically stressed, the most financially stressed, and tend to be at the lower end of the income scale in general, if you talk about black women with children, single mothers being the most financially stressed, they typically also have the least flexibility when it comes to work schedules. So if you just think about that, if I were in that position, I don't have children and I'm married, but let's say I were, I would be looking at, is there an emergency childcare benefit? So for example, there's an article that came out that said some people are spending 20% of their income on childcare alone. Right. And there are only so many percents available, right? So you think about in in certain metro areas, like it's 50% of your income for housing. And now you've got another 20%. Like, so you're talking about an already economically stressed population. You couple that with student loan debt, knowing that we're the most impacted by student loans. So I would look at student loan repayment options, but what does that look like? What is the employer doing for that? Mm. I would look at Healthcare, medical debt is still the number one reason for folks filing bankruptcy. And it was the same when I did bankruptcy counseling almost 20 years ago now. So if I were looking at an employer, I would absolutely look in addition to salary, what does it look like? What kind of retirement plan contribution am I getting? So all of those things matter very, very much. And when it comes to economically stressed populations, yeah, we're the least prepared for retirement. Makes sense, right? Because if we're the lowest paid and we have these other challenges, so look for things that will actually help you and provide that help in areas where we struggle. Yeah. So I recently found out that the matching that my former companies had done with my 401ks was really bad, (laughs) but I didn't know the difference because I wasn't well educated on it. So can you briefly talk to us about what's the big deal in matching and percentages? And in the long run, what's really the big difference between maybe a 3% match and a 6% or, or something even more? If you think about the importance of a 401k match, for those folks who don't even know what it is, it basically means you put in so much money and then the employer matches the amount that you put in. So if you just look up a general article that says, what's a good retirement plan match? It says many employers will match as much as 50 cents on the dollar up to 6% of your salary. Basically that's you put in, you know, 6%, they put in another three. So that's almost 10% of your income being put away for retirement right there, which is phenomenal, right? Yeah. And I think you do have to look at what the employer is putting in. If they say they value you, well, what does that mean, right? You also have to look at something called a vesting schedule. So People vest over time. Sometimes it's a five-year vesting where you vest like 20% every year up to five years. So when does that money become completely yours? And would you have to forfeit that money if you leave before a certain time period? Uh, So, yeah. So there are a lot of questions to ask when it comes to 401k matches. I think 6%, if I were looking at a 6% match or a 5% match, I would call that pretty generous these days, just anecdotally. I did see one company though, that was so phenomenal, just talking to them. It was a prospect. What was it? 10%, 10%, which is still a lot. I think you put in six, they put in 10. It was something, it was really insane. And you don't see it very often. I did run into one organization and these are questions I would ask. Not only do they have a really generous retirement plan match, but they also had a pension, an active pension. 
Are you familiar with the concept of pension? Yeah, like an old school concept. <laughs> in my mind, it's like what the old guys got at the factory. Right, right, right. So like, so in our world, defined contribution means you know how much, you know, someone is putting in between yourself and your employer. You're not sure how much you're going to get out. Defined benefit means that there is a formula that tells you how much you're going to get after a certain amount of time. So that's pension, defined benefit. So those, there are companies, I ran into one, and I will not say any names, but they're out there that still offer an active pension and a pretty generous retirement plan match. And I had one employer that had a different kind of retirement plan where I didn't have to put in anything and they put in 15% of my income without me putting in a dime for retirement. Oh, wow. So those exist. So looking for generous retirement plan contributions, those are really good companies. Now, when it comes to retirement plans and you know the populations to whom we're speaking, a lot of organizations will talk about how much they put in, but then there's a concept, you know, plan leakage is how much money folks are pulling out. So whether through hardship withdrawals and loans and people of color and women are disproportionately affected by that as well, which tells you that they are putting it in. But if they're taking it out as fast as they're putting it in, there are likely some financial well-being issues in between that need to be addressed. So emergency savings may be lacking. That's one read on how financial resilient you might be low levels of high interest rate debt, having a handle on cash flow. Those things are kind of what we look at. If I'm looking at an organization to say, great, great retirement plan, you know, contribution match, that's a beautiful thing. But tell me what's happening with your employees on the back end. So yeah, but if you're talking about from an individual standpoint, I would certainly look at that. I would certainly look at how much they're contributing to health savings accounts or any kind of medical savings, if anything. That's super critical, especially for folks of color that are financially stressed, going back to the stat I referenced earlier about you know medical bankruptcy. So yeah, there's a whole lot that you can look at. It really, though, depends on the individual. What are their goals? You were mentioning before culture. So you said something about, you know, what if it's in my culture, if it's most important for me to get married other than, you know, really thriving in the workplace? Mm-hmm. We like to call that values-based financial wellness and it's super critical as a part of DEI. So what does that mean? What are your values and how can we help you reach the goals as are set by you rather than us telling you completely what your goals should be? So I think from that framework, knowing yourself, knowing what your goals are, knowing what's financially stressing you, I would leverage that and look at a benefits package to help prioritize what is most important to me. I had a job where there was like a package where you could kind of pick from. You could only pick one of the things. It kind of covered the cultural value thing. So it was like, do you want this money to help you towards buying a house? Do you want this money to help you pay off some student loans? And it was like not a huge amount, but you know, still like a very thoughtful set aside amount. And then you you can choose what are your values. And then I think you had to be with the organization like two years before you could use it. And so I thought that was really cool. But I also wondered how realistic is this like for all companies to adopt? What would you say companies should be focusing on to be competitive in not only getting employees, but keeping them and really representing the current culture we're in and just the general values of our culture right now? How did you feel? when they ask you those questions? I think surprised, to be quite frank, because it was so good. And in my mind, I had never heard of it before. So to me, it was like revolutionary because no one I knew had that. But also it didn't feel like it matched with the rest of the culture, but it did feel like, okay, this is cool. What's the catch? Because nothing else that goes on here matches that. It's so funny that you said that. So one, I want to point out, the first thing you said is, wow, I feel at least they're considering me, right? Like they're considering my particular situation, which makes you feel valued a little bit. Mm -hmm. But 
Then you said something else that I say all the time. If you're not walking the walk in other places, people are going to see the okie doke coming, right? Like, yeah. And I call it the trust gap. That is the trust gap. And it happens all the time. It's like you say one thing, oh, we value you. But then you do something that's in complete opposite in its face. And so now I don't feel like I can trust you. I don't feel like I can take you at your word. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really critical. So part of my job when I talk to a company is talk about company culture. So what is the culture like? Do people trust you? Do they not trust you? What are the indicators of that in either direction? And if people think they're going to come in and think that benefits is going to do all the heavy lifting or even financial well-being without you fixing the other parts of your culture, if there's, let's call it micro uh, aggressions or any sort of misogyny or something like that, you're going to feel that more. So I think that's what you're saying. But for me, if it comes to employers, what's important, I think is exactly what you said. Starting with a people first approach to benefits, getting to know your candidates and showing with them from the very beginning that you want to be a partner, not just for giving them a job, but to help them reach their goals, whatever those goals may be. And I think that's a critical thing to do. So for example, some of our clients actually recruit with our financial well-being benefit because they tell them that we don't just want to pay you a salary. We want to partner with you in actually reaching some of the goals that you're setting out as you're here and to help optimize that income. So financial well-being is being demanded. It's becoming increasingly more popular. People are asking for it. We have folks that have used our services, go to other organizations and say, can I still work with you from a coaching perspective? So it's really interesting. But if I were someone in the job market, I would certainly look at one medical. That's something that we take for granted. But again, going back to really what can be catastrophic for most people, getting sick. So looking at medical, understanding the difference in medical plans, a lot of organizations have moved to high deductible healthcare plans, which on paper, if you're financially stressed, you're going to find that that is likely the medical plan that has the lowest premium when it comes to what you're paying. But did you look to see what you're going to be coming up with out of pocket until that plan kicks in in certain areas? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's very much, I just think this kind of... um survival mode mentality that a lot of folks of color have is like, I've got to worry about what's in front of me. I have to worry about Mm -hmm. today and we'll get to tomorrow tomorrow. And so I think that is why the savings isn't there. Why we maybe pick the lowest health plan thing when we could just pay $30 more check and (laughs) have the better coverage. It's all about just trying to like get through the moment today, right now. And it's hard to think so far in advance. That and the the impact that stress has on an individual is so like there are so many effects of stress. I went to a presentation with someone from MIT Age Labs, I believe it was, and they were saying that people make on average 200 individual choices about food 
a day. So you got that. Imagine that you are a single parent and anything goes wrong or you're managing how to drop off kids, how to pick them up. Your child care fell through after school. Your car stopped working. You can't afford to get it fixed. So all of these things that are happening that are overwhelming, that that survival mode is huge. And all of those things I mentioned actually go back to the benefits, right? So going back to like, what do you look at? Depends on your situation. If you know it's critical that your childcare be in place, then I would look for a place that has that, right? There are places that have emergency employee assistance funds, but sometimes they're on an approval basis. So while those are great, you're not always going to be guaranteed to have that. You're seeing the prevalence of emergency savings benefits, which is huge because that is one of the most impactful components of financial resilience. That's super important. But yes, we are often in survival mode kind of kicking the can down the road, not because we're lazy or irresponsible, but because of all the stressors of the given day. That's where benefits like financial well-being can come to place where you can talk to someone and say, look, I've got all this stuff going on. This is killing me. Help, <laughs> right? Help. But here's the other challenge. And you didn't ask this question, but I'll bring it not to further complicate. One in three Black employees is a frontline worker you don't typically have the flexibility in your schedule to either be able to attend if it's a group education session, so attend that or even call a coach. But what some organizations are doing as a best practice is actually giving those employees time on the clock to take care of some of these issues because otherwise, how are you going to get to them? So employers have to understand that it's critical to give folks time, paid time to solve some of these issues that are affecting people showing up to work late or being distracted at work or being so stressed out they're making mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it's like better for everybody. I feel like they always seem to forget that if I'm more at peace and can think clearly, I can do my job better. Hello. Yes. <laughs> and, and if you gave, imagine if you gave me a path to peace as opposed to a path to more stress, how much more loyal would you be? Would the first step, like if somebody was like, we're changing our culture, you know, we're putting mm-hmm. money, time, we're restaffing, maybe we're firing some people, whatever. <laughs> you know, that takes a lot of different elements. If they're really serious about revamping their culture, what's the first thing they should do? Should they be focusing on these type of benefits to get people in the door and keep people that are already there and then go to the more management style communication, other areas of culture? Or Do you need to really do that stuff first before you can implement financial benefits? That's a really great question. I think it has to work in tandem and in alignment because, for example, how many people do you know that will stay in a job they hate because they need the money? Most people I know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why? Because they don't feel like they have any other options. They have too many responsibilities. Right. Right. And if they make a decision that's really selfish for protecting their peace and mental health, then tons of other things fall and it affects other people. Exactly. So I think first it's the pay, if you can be competitive, but also offer a benefit alongside it to help people optimize that pay. And I'm going to keep plugging financial well-being, but I do feel it is the benefit upon which all other benefits rest because all benefits are financial well-being, right? In either terms of a cost savings or actual helping you achieve greater savings. So that's number one. The benefits are critical. You're going to be able to keep those people longer if you can reduce their stress through your benefits. So if you are able to offer emergency childcare and I'm able to show up at work more and do better, 
So then maybe I can start making more money, which is important to people, right? Like, especially people of color and financially stressed people, because we don't necessarily have the luxury to be like, I'm going to take a huge pay cut to go work somewhere I really like because I can afford it. Mm, I don't think so. So I think that you're going to look at, you know, the pay first, and then you're going to look at the benefits that will help you optimize that pay and help reduce your stress. Maybe, you know, a better medical plan, a more generous health savings plan. Also, take the time on the clock to tell people how to get the most out of those medical plans and the health savings and the retirement. Because you can have the best benefits of the world if people don't understand them. It's like meaningless. We found in a study that we did that employers spend all this money on their benefits, but I think they spend less than 1% on educating people about those benefits. Yes. I can't remember the last time somebody sat down, you know, a group setting a Zoom and walked me through benefit options. Right. And in the, in the, so most people actually, we found too, and I read this somewhere else, most people spend a majority of their time, their decision-making during open enrollment or annual enrollment around medical stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they spend very little time on anything else. It's equally impactful, right? So yes, we really advocate as a best practice. And some of our clients do this, which is phenomenal. They have open enrollment education sessions and they make a special effort to have financial coaches available during open enrollment. It's one thing to teach them about what the benefits are. It's another thing to talk about them and how they really matter in your individual financial situation. Mm -hmm. And also offering some sort of financial coaching or education when you onboard at a job. Yeah. But if I'm I'm an employer, I'm going to highlight those suckers at first and I'm going to show you how much they matter to you, how much they can save you in time, how much money they can save you or reduce your stress. That those things are are best practices and super critical. And we're developing curriculum um, in a lot of different areas that's meant to be around, you know, debt reduction and avoiding costly mistakes. And a lot of it is centered around medical mistakes. Ask yourself, if you have learned anything about managing your health care, haven't you learned it after you made a costly mistake? You're like, I'm learning as I go. And there's so many folks who can't afford to learn like that and impacts them, you know, so much more and, and for far longer. So offering education to walk people through that kind of stuff is super, super critical because again, if they don't understand it, if they don't know how to leverage it in their own situations, they're not going to value the employer that much. I feel like there's this assumption, this assumption in some HR structures or just in companies in general that they don't need to say it. It's like, these are adults. We don't need to do this. But then it, that's where it's the divide between like white people and everybody else. <laughs> Um, and, 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 you know, if you're the anomaly to that listening, cool. I'm not trying to say that your parents didn't teach you that, but for a lot of white households, particularly in 2023, like there's some things that's being taught because they've had generations of experience with it. So like, if you can get that lesson at home and then by the time you're in your first job, you're making great decisions at 22, your first real job, and you're only going up from there. That's great. But most of us are still learning those basic things that you learned in your household in our thirties and forties. Like it's, it's not the same. And I think there's this assumption of like, we don't need to educate them that much. Just give them the paperwork. It's fine because the law says we have to and move on. But you're actually saying you don't want to support black and brown people. Then it's a pretty strong statement to me. I've talked to a lot of people on here. Let's say, give an example who are first generation us, the way you navigate in corporate and the way you speak and the way you dress and like the game you play they don't have any stories being told at the dinner table about that. 
like some of us have. So then they get in the space and there's nobody to teach you those things because there's an assumption there. So I think I'm just now becoming aware of what is good for white people is the standard. And I didn't even think of it like that before. Do you know about medical trials and how I believe that they only started doing medical trials on groups of folks that were not white men, like in the eighties, right? Yes. Yes. I'm learning this. Right. So think about that when it comes to financial institutions and when you are designing solutions for different communities, typically the solution reflects that of the maker or the mm-hmm. person that designs it or the people involved in the process. Yeah. Right. So if you're talking about, you know, how many people in these positions of power that are designing solutions in the workplace or elsewhere are immigrants or people of color or people in the pride community or, you know what I mean? Like having diverse groups involved in the solutioning. And I see some organizations doing better than others. Like some organizations are being very well educated by employees. Like they will take direct feedback. So one question I always ask is, what are the opportunities for employees to give unfiltered, anonymized feedback so you really hear the real of what people are dealing with? Yeah. And some organizations have answers. Some of them will look at me like, I can't believe you asked that because we haven't thought about that. Like, huh. So (laughs) getting that feedback, I think is super critical in a very unfiltered way to be able to get feedback from those populations and to really understand how it impacts what solutions are offered. What advice would you give employees who are listening to this and they're like, well, we don't have this. We don't have this. I would love this. This would change the way I come to work. How can they initiate these benefits with their managers? I would ask for it. One, you know, word of mouth is really important. Are you hearing other people around you talk about it? Like, are you being able, do you have a group of colleagues? Like we all, we all have work friends. And most of the time, I don't know if you agree with this, but like people talk about the same struggles, right? So let's say that I'm struggling, like, oh my goodness, uh, my car broke down or this happened or whatever. Most of the time we know the struggles of our colleagues, especially if we're in office or in frontline positions, people share those stories. Does your organization have a way to provide feedback? Like, do you have questions? Contact us or questions for HR? Call and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Do we have any benefits available that would help me? Just you have to start asking for it and build your case to say there are so many other people who are struggling with the same things I'm struggling with. Like if you're a frontline worker and you find that you and a few other people are often like late to work because of some of these challenges, childcare, things like that. Most people are so used to commiserating about money that they talk and exist in the challenge and not trying to drive the solution. And even organizations get used to it. So just just talk about it. Yep. And then it's like, then you start like kind of this culture of complaining. Like we just come in and it's like, how are you? Couldn't get my kids to school on time. Same. Instead of just having conversations that's like, maybe we can get some some childcare help if we come together and ask. Like it'd be really helpful if we had a benefit for childcare. It would be really helpful, like if I could talk to someone about money and, you know, like things like that, like, what do we have in place? Here's how it would help me. Because a lot of cases, for example, prospects will come to us theoretically. And then my question will be, so what stories are you hearing? Like anecdotally, what are you hearing? They'll be like, oh, and then we'll have another conversation. They'll come back with a bunch of stuff. Is it that, you know, you get the standard like survey thing a year, but it's like, what if when we had an all team meeting, people kind of put, you know, remember how we used to fold up paper and put it in a little box in like high school, middle school to like vote for things. <laughs> like yes. a version of that, a digital version of that. And then when we had the all team 
meeting, we pulled some of those questions out and discussed and, you know, maybe not all of them at once, but, you know, that could be a place that people could put those things in and it would get addressed. We knew what happened to the input versus the once a year thing. And then we never hear anything else. <laughs> yes. Demand answers in a nice way. Like, hey, we, so going back to those, enga- they're called engagement surveys. Okay. <laughs> we said this, right? Like you, we said this on this survey, you told us, sometimes people don't even trust the engagement survey, right? right. So right. is it anonymous? Like, Lies. <laughs> yeah. No. So going back to trust, right? right. So starting on a grassroots level and then taking it, find, you know, a spokesperson to go to HR and be like, we were really talking about this and seeing if you can find a way to help it gain ground. My dream is to get people to the point where they are making conscious choices, not out of desperation, but out of the fact that they feel like they have a choice. So in my ideal world, good actors and great employers will be rewarded by having the best employees and having diverse workforce and things like that for people who live there and and sing their praises, which improves the brand usually for the employer, which may improve their bottom line by attracting more consumers. Like these younger generations, they are very conscious of where they're buying from. If you're found to be, you know, a perpetual bad actor, most people are going to try to avoid you if they can like, Oh no. Right. Younger generations. So I think, I think honestly, being able to control what we can, making wiser choices, getting educated on what those choices are individually, letting our voices be heard, and then letting our choices do the talking for us in the long run is going to be critical because let's say a major retailer is a bad actor. They come out, they're like, oh, racial discrimination, this, that, or whatever, and people start boycotting them. Or employees start saying, I'm not working here. Like, I heard this is a terrible employer for people of color. I'm out. Mm -hmm. They'll start feeling that. So, yeah, it sounds idealistic, I'm sure. You're probably like, no. It sounds very idealistic, but honestly, I'm going to reflect it back to you. Think about what you're doing and why, like what you're doing right now. Do you feel you're making a conscious choice? Yeah. So, we have the luxury of doing so. And my dream is getting our, you know, brothers and sisters like of all malign demographics to the same place where they can be making these decisions to make things a little bit better and a little bit better. Yeah. Thank you so much, Laura. This has been so insightful. I feel like I need to go like follow up on some of these concepts and things and like such a huge learning moment for people. So I really appreciate your time with this. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is a great conversation for me as well. Laura leaves us with another great reminder that closed mouths don't get fed. Share your needs with your employer and see if there are systems in place that can help you. If not, you may be the reason that new benefits or programming find their way to your company. Have a great week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.